What's up, hustlers? Welcome to the Matt Brown Show. This episode of the Matt Brown Show is proudly brought to you by My Little Pony. It sounds oversimplified, but if you want, it's like dating. If you like doing A, B, C, D, and E, and the chick that you like uh, seeing loves doing F, G, and H, if you go and just talk about A, B, C, D, and E, how, uh, how are you going get, to get anywhere? So you have to understand what your partner, quote unquote, in this case, investor slash corporate wants. Then you'll get somewhere. So let's stick with dating. I love this. So, <laughs> so dating is what happens to start a boot camp and you get married over in Ned Banks' world, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, so I guess, uh, yeah, okay, let's stick with that analogy. <laughs> if, if investors are the parents, stop trying to date your parents <laughs> and go get some clients. True story. Um, some say that startups go to corporates to die. But is that the full story? I reached out to arguably two of the biggest players in Africa's startup ecosystem to get their views on exactly where we are at in terms of our startup ecosystem and its development and we explore how corporates are dating the world of startups to solve some of their biggest innovation and disruption challenges. Our panelists are none other than Zach George, the co-founder and MD of Startup Bootcamp Africa, and Stuart van der Fien, the head of disruption and innovation for NetBank Corporate Investment Banking. They also smashed the shit out of our Rainbow Dash mascot in the studio with a baseball bat. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Cool, guys. So today, I'm actually here, people. <laughs> cool. More of this guy later. Here you go. Zach, do the honors, please, buddy. Cool. So today, I'm very excited about this particular episode of the show um, for the simple reason that we have two of South Africa's, if not Africa's, if not the world's probably most opinionated, most exciting players within the startup uh, ecosystem. Um, I'm going to start with the gentleman on my left. He is none other than Zach George, the co-founder and MD of Startup Bootcamp Africa. Have a seat, brother. <laughs> Good new, dude. Then, to my right, I have none other than Nedbank Corporate Investment Banking, Head of Disruption and Innovation, Stuart Benefian. <laughs> Welcome, yeah, thanks. Your mic's there, bud. Thanks. Cool, gentlemen. So, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, Zach, this is your second time. Yes, of course. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, Did you forget about that? Two years ago uh -huh. at, uh, what was it? Cliff, no. Cliff Central. Cliff Central. That's Back right, in yeah. another heyday. Yeah. You know, before I left, <laughs> I binned them. <laughs> well, onto greener uh, pastures, right? I know. Literally. You know, exactly. And uh, Stuart, this is your first time, so welcome. Thank you so much. I bro. promise I'll be gentle. Great to be here. There is a bell here. If you feel like you want to ring it or something, I don't know. Just just have a go at it. Cool. So today we're going to talk about startups, right? Um, and so startups are the probably well one of the most exciting kind of spaces within you know entrepreneurship and more broadly business in the world. Um, and so today uh, we're going to really just explore a few things. We're going to start off with the startup ecosystem. We're going to look at kind of like what where we currently at. I mean, you guys are just doing such amazing things, and I'll dive into PNP and the work that you're doing with that. It's a US accelerator, right? Correct. Okay, cool. Um, and then we're going to just talk about a whole bunch of rad shit in this space. So that's all tech, it's all startups, it's going to blow your mind. Okay, cool. Sure, cool. So let's, um, let's get the show on the road. So let's talk about the startup ecosystem, right? So obviously, it's fraught with problems locally. 
Um, where, where, how would you describe where the startup ecosystem is at? And I want to start with you, uh, Zach. How would you describe it is today? Is South, um, South, South Africa, Africa specifically? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you'd asked me this question when I came here to South Africa eight years ago, uh, I'd give you a very dismal answer. Um, and you can measure startup ecosystem sort of movements by the, um, the total amount of entrepreneurial activity as a percentage of GDP. Um, South Africa at that point in 2010 was sitting at around seven to eight percent of total activity economically was entrepreneurship, which is less than Angola and less than Gabon. It's just, it was, it was a complete disgrace. That's one barometer of looking at it. The second barometer is the total amount of activity in the venture capital space and venture capital in South Africa, well, on the African continent prior to 2012 was less than $20 million. It's absolutely horrific. But a lot has happened in the last six to seven years. Um, the total amount of entrepreneurship activity in South Africa has grown significantly, and I can get to reasons later as to why that's happened, but it's it's up to above 20%. And the total amount of VC funding on the African continent is now close to $600 million, which is still... That's, and that's tiny. Right? It's still tiny, yeah. but compared to where it was in 2012, it's a six-fold increase, if not more. So we're getting there, and there are lots of reasons for it that I can delve into. I'm sure you have questions for us yeah. later on that, but we're at a good space right now. Okay, cool. So it's basically it's growing, right? So it is growing. It's, it's, I suppose it's literally fundamentally different to where it was eight years ago. Absolutely. Okay. 100%. And obviously, a startup bootcamp, you basically run these amazing kind of accelerators once a year. Ned Bank. Hello, Mr. Ned Bank. <laughs> How's it? Posits, uh, are sponsors of them of that particular program, um, and so I want to get the view of corporate essay. Now, um, you're not, you, in other words, you've only been in corporate quite recently. So you were also the founder of Paper Plane Ventures. So you're very affair with startups. In fact, you came from startups and went to corporate. What's your view on the ecosystem today? Where are we at? Well, I think uh, Zach did the answer quite a bit of justice. Um, but I've been deeply encouraged in what I've seen in the last 18 months, not only in South Africa, but uh, in Kenya uh, and in Nigeria, where we've also been, I guess, looking for our top 100 disruptors, um, including some international ecosystems. Uh, and if we look at the amount of activity that we've seen increase over that time, it's been phenomenal. It's been great to see some of the rounds being raised by Jumo, and by Yoko, you know, creating a finish line that's really starting to get the angel community going, mm-hmm. um, which then feeds well, funds ideas, which then feeds into early stage VC and ultimately gets the VCs firing. So, I mean, this entire yeah. thing's an engine and an <coughs> ecosystem that uh, is completely interdependent. Um, and it's a lot healthier than it was even two years ago. Um, so, so, so long live that. Um, and I think from the corporate perspective, uh, even if we look at the disruption agenda, which we hosted last week, uh, we had over a hundred corporate investment banking clients there. Uh, and every single one of them, um, were, uh, blown away by the teams that we brought. Um, we are already seeing you know, a ton of possible outcomes from that in terms of experimentation. And that's what we really want to get firing. It's an important element. And it ties directly into the work that uh, Startup Bootcamp, uh, Zach and Philip are doing. Um, and it's why we're so supportive of it. And it's why we're the first African bank to sponsor a Startup Bootcamp program. Why do you sponsor these dudes? <laughs> why, do you, why, should, why do you actually care? <laughs> so, so I think you know, the, the story of, of Zach and Philip uh, uh, predates startup bootcamp they were already doing fantastic work uh, with various uh, organizations in south africa 
Um, and we're really pioneering in the space of acceleration, real acceleration, um, in South Africa. So when, you know, when they, when they initiated Startup Bootcamp AfriTech here, uh, it really was a no-brainer. This was something we wanted to get behind. Uh, our imperative was to get, you know, the bank firing in terms of partnering, commercializing, experimenting with startups. And this was a perfect me- mechanism for us. Even the teams that come through the fast track programs are high quality, uh, and offer opportunities for us to collaborate. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, so you're obviously in the business of fostering great ideas with, a, with I suppose, the premise being that if they scale and they lend themselves to scale, you can solve fundamental problems that internally within the bank, they would, let's just say it's not exactly impossible to solve, but it would be pretty damn difficult to do, right? Is that true, fair to say? So I think if we really think about the mandates of disruption, so when I was approached by NetBank, um, about two years ago now, it, the, the idea was how could disruptive or emerging technologies assist us in terms of uh, creating new client value propositions and how is industry going to change or be disrupted and how could we pioneer that um, and then also prevent our own disintermediation. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, that you know, there's strategic elements to that, but it's easy to talk. It's difficult to do in this space mm-hmm. and to actually deliver value. So for us, you know, we didn't even want to go and speak to the media or have exposure until we had wins under our belt. Um, and so I think it has been an epic journey. I think far too many people are talking in the space and not actually doing a leading. Uh, so if that answers the question. It does. Um, I hate the subject of disruption. I think it's so preloaded and beaten to death. Yeah. It's like the soggy arm of a, you know. <laughs> it's just really, really, it's surf right now. It's actually, a, I, like if someone comes on my show and says like, cause I get pitched all the time. They're like, oh, I want to talk about disruption. I'm like, cheers, dude. <laughs> because it's like, it's overtraded. It really is overtraded. Like talk about disruption. When does it start? When does it stop? It doesn't, you know what I mean? Like it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a continuous process. It's, I mean, disruption is a continuous process. And I mean, I, uh, people sometimes come, I mean, I've, I've been, I mean, prior to coming to South Africa, I was in Wall Street, which is probably the most, the least innovative, disruptive place on the planet, except Can't for when they, <laughs> they make when, a lot of money. They do. They, they create very disruptive three acronym products like CDOs and CMOs and things that people don't understand. Sell that and make a lot of money out of it. But, so they're disruptive in that way, <laughs> literally and figuratively. But um, the point I'm going to make here is you don't need to be creating something f- entirely new. You can, I mean, if you look at the S&P 500 over the last, 20 years, and you look at the companies that have added the most amount of value from a pure return perspective, those are companies that haven't changed products often, but have changed business models. So they don't spend a lot of money on R&D, but they, but they invest in getting market validation and selling the exact same thing to customers in a different way. So business model innovation yields a lot bigger IRR and ROI versus just product innovation. The problem with a lot of entrepreneurs in South Africa is they they assume that they have to spend nine years in a flipping lab developing some new strain of God knows what or some product that just is mind-blowingly, I mean, like, you know, the next electric car or the, you know, a car that can fly or... You don't need to develop crazy, beautiful things. You can take existing products, but change the way you get to market. Some of, some of the, the most successful businesses on the African continent are simple businesses. Flutterwave, Jumia, Sendi, um, Twiga. I mean, Twiga just links farmers with retailers and cuts out the middlemen. 
they're valued at close to $60 million in less than three years. Flutterwave helps people send money across borders through one single API. Extraordinary team that did that. Of course, extraordinary team. But it's, it's important to try and be simple, solve simple problems, solve important problems. And if you can solve problems that are a need to have versus a nice to have, I sometimes give this example of, well, Zach, what do you mean by that? I said, in Silicon Valley, you can go, and Stuart goes to Silicon Valley a lot. You can raise $20 million, you know, uh, talking about drones for a second, by building a company that uses drones to deliver organic acai berry smoothies to a high-rise in San Francisco and charge $50 for a smoothie, but it's sent through a drone through your window, and you can raise money. But that, that shit will not fly in Africa. What Africa needs is that same drone company that can deliver ARVs to people in Nigeria that can't afford drugs. So use the same technology, but solve a real critical problem versus solving a nice-to-have. And that's how you make money and impact in Africa. So it's the headache versus the vitamin. Absolutely. Sort of narrative, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Let's dive into some kind of real-world practical stuff. So you mentioned a hypothetical example there, and you, you both name-dropped about a dozen startups. <laughs> so if you were to pick one each that you really think are going to shoot the lights out, maybe not yet, but they will. Um, and could you tell us more about what those two references are in terms of the business and business model potentially, um, and why you think they're great examples of a scalable startup that, you know, from both a corporate and both just from a startup perspective are, are just really good and amazing. Should I go first? Yeah, you go first. I mean, I, I, this is a very tough question for me because I personally, outside of Startup Bootcamp, have invested in close to 15 tech startups. And it's very hard for me to pick from my children, if I want to call that no way. And so we've invested in close to 30 companies over the last six years. I think all of them are going to be incredible and are going to be you know, disruptors and scaling globally. But if you were to ask me to pick just one, let me, let me talk about two. Yeah, I'm, okay, I'm one. putting you on the spot. If it's one, there's a company in our current cohort called Mpost. And what they do is beautiful. Yeah, Why great do you company. Love Why are you jumping in? Did you, is this one of yours? Is it? Okay, yeah, I mean, we'll Ned, come back to you in a sec. Yeah. Go ahead, Zach. Sorry to interrupt. And they're actually sitting at, I, I, yeah, NetBank's considering something with them. I, I can't say it. Publicly. Considering. We'll talk about anyway. that later. <laughs> Mpost is a company. What they do is very simple. Uh, about 90% of people across the African continent do not have physical addresses. They live in parts of the continent, uh, be it rural or peri-urban areas that don't have physical addresses. Now, you may not think that, that that's a big problem, but if you're a business like an insurance company, a retailer, or a bank, and you have to ship something as simple as a bank card or an insurance policy or deliver a, a product through an e-commerce web a platform, that person cannot receive their product. So as a result, they are excluded from any sort of commerce whatsoever. Now, imagine if there was a way in which you could digitize a post box. And like what is... Latitude and longitude sort of thing. Not even that. So, so people have tried that. So in the States and in Europe, you've had the whole, you know, three, three words, was it three words or three short words or whatever? That is, again, if you can, if there are proper satellite GPS coordinates for where you live. But what, what happens if you live in rural Kenya where there isn't enough phone, phone signal and coverage? So above and beyond that, everyone has a cell phone number. Everyone in East Africa, a starting point, uses mobile money, right? There are post boxes. There are 683 
post boxes, or post offices all over Kenya. I'm just talking about one country and imagine how it can scale. So what this startup Mpost has done is, is, is they've taken your, your cell phone number together with your zip code and created a virtual address that is registered with the closest post office to you. So if I live in a street somewhere that has no physical address, but the closest post office is the Nairobi post office, I sign up on Mpost with my mobile number. Because I'm on mobile money, they can cross-verify that I am the owner of that account because MTN or Airtel has my details or M-Pesa. So I am who I say I am. I have a package delivered to me. The address says Vusi Indala, 075-658-4189-00100, Nairobi, Kenya. My package gets delivered to that post office. When it gets collected by the postal attendant, he looks at the number. Oh, that's one of that's an Mpost customer. Goes onto his laptop, clicks a button, a QR code gets generated immediately. That QR code then gets printed, gets stuck onto the parcel. An SMS gets sent, either if it's a feature phone or if it's a short code, to the recipient saying, you have a package, um, and this is your unique reference number. When do you want to pick it up? A, do you want to pick it up in person, or do you want to have it delivered to you? If you pick it up in person, come with your ID, and the number here, here's your post. If you want to have it picked up, there's a courier company that, that will deliver it to you at an extra cost. Are you feeling lonely on your entrepreneurial journey? Well, it doesn't need to be that way. Check out the Daily Hustle Telegram group powered by the Matt Brown Show and connect with other hustlers from around the world. Now, all of a sudden, you have hundreds of thousands of people that can pick up stuff from courts to insurance policies. And you'd think that this would be a great value add to people. But who benefits more from this from a financial perspective? It's the banks. The insurance companies, the retailers, Jumia. I mean, it's, it's, it is insane. Suddenly, an entire continent is formally inducted into commerce. Because in the emerging world. In, in, in the emerging world. So this could sail to Brazil, to India. to, But it started off small. So what I love about these guys is they started off in their hometown of Kenya, uh, uh, working with the mobile operators and um, the postal unions. They have an agreement with the union, the International Union of Post Offices. I think it's UIP or IUP. So every post postal union in the world has agreed in principle that if the technology is made available, the post offices will be on board, which is a big win. And it's just a question of now scaling it. Well, yeah, so, I mean, through those partnerships, it would just scale anyway. Yeah, basically, exactly. Yeah. So, but I love, but I suppose what I really love about that story is that it's such a simple problem. Where are you? Exactly. Where are you? Yeah. I want to send you some shit. Where are you? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it's funny though because like most tech, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but most to your point earlier on, it's like you know the typical. No, I wouldn't say the typical guy, but in some cases, and probably more than we care to actually acknowledge, is that you think you need to overbake something. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like decide on a problem that the world has and then go out there and solve it. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Don't yeah. be stuck in your garage building tech for nine months. Yeah. Just understand what the problem is. Fall in love with that problem. Correct. And keep falling in love with that problem because I find that tech uh, startups, they kind of like, they solve the problem initially, yeah. like an MVP, minimum viable product. And yeah. then before they even get to product market fit, they've iterated out of the problem that they were originally solving, yeah. usually because they're trying to get to scale. 
Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? So to your point, fall in love with your product, but also fall in love with your customer's solution to that product. Don't overbuild. Always, whilst you're iterating, make sure your customer or your market wants what you're building. But you're right. Yeah, cool. the need versus the want. Yeah. What's your interest in this? I know the answer in my head, but just for those who don't and they're trying to work out why would Ned Bank CIB be interested in this? Was it in? M-Post, mobile M-Post. post. Mobile post, M-Post. What? Well, I think, I think like what Zach said, it opens up uh, entire previously underserved or non-served populations, uh, not only in South Africa um, for inclusion, but across the continents in the emerging world. And I think that in itself is transformative. Uh, the question now, and this is where we focus the majority of our time, is how do you actually experiment and then commercialize yeah. an idea like this? Um, or in, in this case, a product. You know, how, how do you make this lovable, and how do you scale it and make it the de facto mechanism uh, to actually solve some of these challenges? And where it can't solve those challenges, what else do you need to plug in to accelerate those strategic imperatives? Yeah. Well, let's explore that, if you don't mind, for a second. Like, how does one do that? So you've got a, you've got an interesting startup that's definitely scale ready that needs a partner like a NetBank CIB who banks big retailers, the biggest in Africa. Um, and so through you, if you have those existing relationships, if you can work out the commercial model and all that kind of cool stuff, like how do you exactly look at Impost and go right? Yeah. So I think this is a good time for me to explain what it is we do because uh, and I agree with you. I think the word disruptions come is very overused, but it has a very specific meaning to us and, and it's very positive. So effectively, um, when we initiated 18 months ago, we wanted to be hyper focused to really make an impact in this space and to prove that it was possible to go through these, to go through these phases. So first of all, every six months we identify a hundred global disruptors. Uh, we look across San Francisco Bay area, London, Lagos, Nairobi, Cape Town, Johannesburg. And those 100 disruptors uh, fit around the core thesis that if we can compute our clients' operations or their realities, as we call it, we can perfectly serve them through the interpretation of financial services and products. We're a bank. We're working out how to build financial services IP in this space. And I'll give you an example now. So we think about it in terms of four layers, satellite imagery, drone imagery, fixed video imagery, and sensors. And I'll, I'll come back to the example now. We then identify 12 collaborations across our group. So retail, business banking, wealth and insurance, corporate investment banking. And then we take six of those through to experimentation phase in corporate investment banking every six months and one through to commercialization on a rolling basis to drive it home. And that's where we scale. And then our final objective is uh, on the venture capital side to plug into global and local venture capital deal flow. Um, and in that of those 100 disruptors, we table 20 every six months. And we take six through our pre-investment committee and three through our investment committee. And if we drive this like a machine or like a science, you get much better results. So, I mean, you know, the example I often bring up is the work we've done with aerobotics. So this is a team who build precision farming tools on top of drone and satellite imagery for tree crops specifically. For us, the strategic imperative was how do we disrupt inside of uh, tree crop and agricultural space? Now, the precision farming tools they build in terms of looking at tree height, canopy, health, and size, but also uh, um, getting to yield mapping is incredibly useful yeah. in term, for, for our clients and for de-risking on our front. But where it really starts to get interesting is as you get to yield mapping times forward price to get to future cash flows, and you have an underlying biological asset valuation, you can actually change the paradigm of lending in the agri-space or Absolutely. insurance in the agri-space. Yeah. Because for the first time ever, 
you're not de-risking by lending to a cooperative or at the aggregate level, but you can de-risk by lending to an individual tree. Now, this is information we've never had. A tree or a farmer, like an actual tree. An actual tree. Now, this is information wow. we've never had, right? Now, think about this in terms of scaling uh, globally to small-scale farmers. It's completely applicable. Uh, of course, it's going to take time to iterate, to experiment, and to get there, and to get the commercials working. But the fact remains is, you know, we've been a fantastic scale partner for Aerobotics. We led their Series A. Um, ag funder from San Francisco joined. Uh, they've got very exciting leads in the United States and in Europe. Uh, and this is a South African startup that's uh, impacting globally. South African farmers are some of the highest users of commercialized drones in the world. Just think about that. That's mind blowing. Mm-hmm. And that's from startup community. Yeah. It's beautiful. That's absolutely. And, and, um, startup bootcamp's program in IoT, uh, not in South Africa, but in Europe was the accelerator that aerobotics went through. Mm-hmm. So our global company has uh, an equity stake in them as well, which never hurts, I suppose. No, it won't. <laughs> but let's talk about equity stakes and so forth. So if you're a startup and you go through and you get accepted through your process and then you wind up going through all the you know, 10 weeks, I think it is, and you wind up doing Demo Day. So Demo Day, and jump in if I misunderstand something, but basically there's a room full of investors of which Stuart is an it's example. It's investors, one. corporates, mentors. Corporates. Okay. Yeah. Stuff Yourself, like that. you'll be there. Yeah, I'll be there. Just to correct that, so we look after deal flow, and then we have NetBank Venture Capital, which is headed by Junaid Duplessis, um, an, an incredibly competent uh, and exciting venture capitalist. Okay, so there's a room full of people, and you're pitching your impost idea, right? So here's the thing. I get a lot of email from startup founders and so forth, and invariably what happens is this whole question about funding comes up. Mm-hmm. I had a guy who has a business, um, I believe it's called Groponics, Declan, I think his name is. Uh, yeah, he's on my daily hustle telegram group. You should totally go and check it out. Um, but, uh, but basically he's got a very interesting idea, which is kind of like, I don't know, I'm getting, I don't want to get into it, but basically he's got a funding problem, right? So you basically give some funding if you are accepted, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You guys, I imagine, would fund these startups also. Yes yeah, or no? So, um, we obviously have a specific mandate and we like to operate in terms of our core thesis and we like to commercialize with our clients. Um, what does that mean practically? So with aerobotics, uh, validating through experimentation that there's client value and delight. So for example, the first time we tabled the results from uh, prospective clients, um, farms, the farmers actually wanted to leave during the meeting because there was fungus in one of the orchards that they were unaware of. Now, for us, it's an immediate validation. There's value in this, right? So how do we double down on that? And how do we take this to everybody? Because these tools are useful. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. 
Cool. So I, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a startup. Okay, tech guy. What advice do you have for for startups who are looking for funding? So if they don't get through the accelerator and they don't get access or your attention, essentially. Um, so I mean, you mentioned just before you're on air that how you know the angel network in South Africa is non-existent. I've got Benji Kutsia telling me that the VCs in South Africa don't really venture. There is a massive funding issue for most startups in South Africa. What is the definitive rule today where we at? Okay, so I'll I'll I say a lot of controversial things for a reason. Yes, it's because I never lie. I just fantastic. I'm, 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 what do you think of Stuart? I'm not a politician, so <laughs> I'm not a politician, so I don't lie. Um, <laughs> I'm going to caveat that statement and, and take a few steps back. Not everyone needs funding, right? In fact, I can go out on a limb and say more than 50% of entrepreneurs raise funding for the wrong reasons. They raise funding because it's the convenient thing to do. It's to ask for money. I had someone come to me just three days ago saying, hey, I need to raise some money Weed is legal now, and I'm building a platform where buyers and sellers of weed can meet, and I can take a cut, uh, house some money for it. I've seen so many people that want to do amazing things, and they assume that they can raise money from other people. The first question you got to ask yourself is, would you mortgage your house? Would you sell everything you had and put it into your venture? Everything you had. If the answer is not a resounding yes, you should never ask anyone for funding because you don't believe in that idea good enough and understand the product market fit for anyone to even look at the need for funding. You can fund a lot of your work without having to raise a single cent in capital. There are a lot of things that you can do. There's um, uh, supply-based finance, there's consumer finance, there's pre-funding of ventures. In certain cases, you can go and take out loans. You can um, bootstrap yourself before you get to a certain point. A lot of people raise fundings because they think it's the right thing to do. Now, number two, you have to figure out the simple concept of asset liability matching. It's what you learn in accounting 101, right? If you're raising funding towards something like R&D, right, you cannot go to the debt capital markets or to a VC that is looking to fund scale and growth. If you're building a really cool tech product that needs a lot of research and development input into it, you go to, to, to the IDC, to TIA, to CEDA. I'm sure people on, on, on watching this know what these entities are. So you have to figure out who funds what. A lot of VCs, and to Benji's point, and uh, I know Benji quite well, a lot of VCs get really annoyed and frustrated by how little research startups do on them before coming to them. I mean, I can go out on a limb and say Knife Capital probably does less than 2% of its deals are inbound requests. It's outbound. They, they, would, they would actually be high. In fact, I mean, Knife Capital told me two days ago that they've only funded one company that's been inbound, and that was Data Profit. And that was a yeah. very specific channel. So if you're a startup founder, do some research on the VC funds and the angels and the networks that you're talking to, because you cannot approach everyone with the same story. If a company says, we invest in early stage, post MVP fintech companies, and you happen to be a later stage ag tech company, don't be surprised if you get a no, because you haven't done your bloody homework. So that's one part of it. There are a lot of other things, but I'm just saying 
if you have the right product market fit and an investor's mandate fits what you do, there is a much greater likelihood of you being, you know, going through investment committees and passing things. So think like an investor if you want to get money from an investor. Think like a corporate if you want to work with a corporate. More often than not, entrepreneurs think like entrepreneurs. It's like, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's, it's simple. It, it, it sounds oversimplified, but if you want, it's like dating. If you like doing A, B, C, D, and E, and the chick that you like uh, seeing loves doing F, G, and H, if you go and just talk about A, B, C, D, and E, how, uh, how are you going get, to get anywhere? So you have to understand what your partner, quote unquote, in this case, investor slash corporate wants. <laughs> then you'll get somewhere. So let's stick with dating. I love this. So, <laughs> so dating is what happens to start a boot camp and you get married over in Ned Banks' world, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, so I guess, uh, yeah, okay, let's stick with that analogy. <laughs> if, if investors are the parents, stop trying to date your parents <laughs> and go get some clients. True story. Um, Amen to that. You know, for most of us, time is what we want most, but what we use worst. So why not let digital kung fu make the most of your time? By letting us market you, the brand behind the brand. Check out digitalkungfu.co.za to get your hands on our curated content packages specifically for busy entrepreneurs. F- find those partners, write those invoices. Yeah. Uh, if you've got invoices incoming, your parents are going to keep funding your dates. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Love it. Uh, drum roll. Drum all that shit. Ring the bell, Zach. Just do it, dude. That's amazing. <laughs> so, so let's talk about it. I mean, equity financing, at least in my perspective, is the most expensive form of financing. It is. Just in my own business, just in the last two years, I've met with six potential investors who don't understand media. I told them all to go. But Matt, you'd be amazed how many people on the street don't understand that equity is more expensive than debt. Yeah, but that's ridiculous. Yeah, but literally, you're, you're in a minority. If you talk to the average Joe on the street and say, what's more expensive, debt or equity? No, no, debt's very expensive. I've got to pay interest on it. Yeah. The concept of equity is still very misunderstood in South Africa and, well, across, across the world. Um, and you see how precious any successful entrepreneur is with equity, uh, just how valuable it is. Yeah. But isn't no. that what you guys want, though? I mean, would you entertain impost if they weren't prepared to give up equity. I know you guys take 8%, I think, something like that. Um, so I actually can't talk about impost right now. Okay, yeah. can you talk about something else? So yeah, I mean, if, if we talk... What, if we so talk what about, equity? Is equity yeah. a game changer for you guys? So if we talk about it generically, uh, I, well, I think, you know, in any banking environment, you look at both debt and equity. Yeah, and it's just of natural. Yeah. Um, yes, equity is important. And, um, you know, in, in the venture space, we don't want a controlling stake. We want to be minority. Of course. We want the founders to control the business. And it's the way it should be. So that's where the upside is. For us, it's how do we, uh, facilitate or fast track, uh, venture returns? And I think that, you know, that's the essence of venture Absolutely. capital. Absolutely. And using technologies to actually disintermediate an industry much like what aerobotics are doing in agriculture. Okay, cool. Um, let's do the knockout punch. So... <laughs> add a little bit about the equity story for like a minute. Okay, go. Because it's, it's, it, it's important from if, if there are VCs listening to this. Um, Is this if, addressed to VCs now? Yeah, to investors. Or, yeah, just people that, people that fund companies. 
uh, yeah, startups. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in less mature markets like South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, compared to Silicon Valley and let's say London, as an example, because venture capital is so new, I'm talking six or seven years tops. In, what do you, where? in, in, in yeah, South, South Africa, Africa, uh, in okay, Kenya, yeah. Africa, broadly speaking. Um, the, 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 the investors always hold the, you know, the aces, right? They, they, they control terms. They tend to control terms. So it is not uncommon to find a venture capital fund in South Africa or in Kenya or in Ghana or Nigeria to say, Hey, at an early stage, pre series A, I'll take 40% of your company or up to 49% of your company, maybe even more than 50% of your company, because there are so, there are so few options on the table. But from a funding cycle, if you go from your angel round to your seed round to your series A, your BC, et cetera, the simple math of dilution does not make sense. If you have more than a 40% stake in a company at a seed round, your, your co-founders now own 60%. After your, after your seed, Pre-Series A, the founders own less than half of the company. What motivation do do they and the employees have to run this company? So at the end of your Series B, you're going to own less than 5% of the company. So if you look at classic successful Silicon Valley companies, you look at a trajectory of two co-founders, friends and family, an angel, a VC, a second VC, and then potentially an exit. And there is a, there is a, there is a science to the art of VC funding. And my rule of thumb is pre-Series A, if the founders do not own at least 60% of the company, there is a motivational uh, disconnect. And From the founders' perspective. Yeah. Yeah, of, of incentives. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the thing. I'm actually writing my book, and um, I th- I'm toying with the idea of calling it scale thinking. And it's, it's basically all around how you approach thinking about scale, not necessarily executing it, although that is a portion of the book. Um, and so one of the things that um, I was writing about this week was that most entrepreneurs don't think about what the consequences will be of taking funding. And I write, I write this whole, whole piece about a hypothetical startup called Pyrotech and he's, this guy's called Joe and he's got like a small team. Um, and he's got like, you know, MVP approaching product market fits and he gets put under pressure by reading a headline, um, about a competitor that's playing in his space. So he feels like, Oh shit, I need to go now. I need to execute quickly to get to scale fast so I can retain market share, et cetera. So what he does, he goes and he knocks up a number of VC doors and eventually gets funded by, um, a fund over in Silicon Valley, who basically then say, okay, dude, if you want to scale, what we want to do is implement an executive management team, right? We want a sales director, we want a head of talent, we want a head of blah, 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 because he doesn't have these people, he's been doing two or three jobs, right, while he's been getting there. So inevitably, what happens is they give him the money, and so they implement this team. Now he's starting to feel like he loses control, the culture of the business starts to change, um, and so people that were on the founding team start to come to him, they start to complain, but he can't really do anything thing his hands are tied because his backers want a 20x return on their capital so inevitably what happens is the business starts to scale but then in the pursuit of scale they go after a different market and inevitably what happens is joe is not the right ceo anymore he's his shares have been diluted in other words if to found a company like you know to found a company you have to be a particular type of ceo if you want to have and run a hundred million dollar company that's a different dude with a different skill set right and so what that's happens Bob. is 
Yeah, exactly. And so what happens is, and this, by the way, this isn't a hypothetical story. This is, happens all the time. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. This is a yeah. real thing. Yeah, of course. Um, and so he loses his company, all because he was impatient about taking funding. Do you know what I mean? And it's just it was an interesting story about how you think about the consequences of taking funding because you don't necessarily need to do it. It's a Silicon Valley-driven narrative that in many instances is bullshit, right? Because for every headline that you read on TechCrunch, you know, XYZ founder startup raises $25 million, you know, as bike-sharing battle heats up or whatever. You know, for every one of those, there's hundreds of thousands of crushed dreams of founders who didn't make it because they're bought into the BS narrative. Yeah. Stop trying to date your parents. Yeah, exactly, man. <laughs> but uh, so, so funny. I don't know if you want to comment. So we on. have a lot of those examples in South Africa that people listening can can relate to. So when people talk about how startups exit, and I'll talk about exits for a second because exits are very, very important that no one talks about. So most exits in Silicon Valley and in New York and more mature markets happen not through trade sales or IPOs. The majority of them happen through secondary, tertiary, and you know, you know four or fifth round buyouts because we don't have a, a sophisticated VC slash early stage private equity market in South Africa versus overseas. It, it is growing. It, yeah, it, it, it is absolutely growing. Absolutely. Most of the exits tend to happen through trade sales, so corporate buyouts or, I mean, the, I, mean I, I haven't heard of an IPO from a tech startup in South Africa. No. I mean, I, I, well, snap, so snap, you're talking about Snapscan, right? So yeah, B2B so, C. Yeah, so Snapscan 227- and, you know, at the risk of pissing off a few, you know, corporates here, um, a lot of corporates that, so, so South Africa is, is ironically a very acquisitive corporate culture, has a very acquisitive corporate culture. Um, if you look at entities like, uh, Nasper, Standard Bank, you know, the big banks, insurance companies and retailers tend to acquire startups very early on. Why? Because of two reasons. A, I don't know what they're doing and it scares me. So let me buy them. It's FOMO because they don't understand what they do. Uh, the same thing in insurance, the same thing in retail. So you, you buy something because you have the balance sheet and you literally cut out competition. Now, what happens when an entrepreneur that's building a great vision is now owned by a bank or a retailer or a telco before they have scaled? I mean, similar story with um, Rainfin and Absa, right? So the right time for a large corporate to not buy or have a significant equity stake in a startup is after they've gone past the famous J curve, and you're helping them scale across product, across markets, geographies, etc. In a non-exclusive way. In, in a non absolutely in a non-exclusive way. Um, so when Snapscan, so Snapscan's technology was seven years old, is seven years old. Snapscan predated Apple Pay. So Apple Pay was the payment innovation of the year globally in 2015. Snapscan is pre-Apple Pay, right? Mav loves that one. Right? So, um, but the founders of Snapscan were given, I don't know what the amount was, but they were given a ridiculously small amount of money, but enough for them as individuals to be bought out entirely. The problem we have in South Africa, or in Africa as a whole, is Snapscan's technology was so incredible, but customers couldn't adopt it because they were scared. What is Snapscan? Can I pay with a QR code on my phone? They just couldn't trust it. So Snapscan had a few hundred, maybe a couple of thousand merchants onboarded. The moment a bank bought them out, oh, it's powered by a standard bank. Oh, that so, so they must be right. So standard bank helped them scale, 
but the innovation completely stagnated, stagnated yeah. because now you have employee uh, entrepreneurs that are employees. We call them acquihires, acquisition hires. So you've killed innovation because now a corporate is running a startup, running as in fully owning it, which is a fundamental disconnect. So what we strongly believe as Startup Bootcamp or as Zach is corporates can take equity stakes, but wait until there's, you know, maturity or take a significant or sorry, a minority stake where you're not infringing upon voting rights and vetoes and that. So let the entrepreneur run their company and you help them with access to market, commercialization, licenses, regulatory and compliance help. That's how corporate should work with startups. And Stuart is probably the best person in this country on this continent that can talk about how it is a win-win for a founder and a corporate. And you're not destroying innovation. So do you not agree with the statement then? <laughs> 100% agree. Yeah. Hold uh, on. For us, it's hold on, hold on. But that startups go to corporates to die. Do you agree with oh. that? <laughs> if, if it's not managed incredibly carefully. What does that mean practically? What do you, what I mean, if, let's just say. If, if a corporate buys a startup, you might as well throw it in the bin, like 100%. Uh, it's just, it's too difficult to grow and to scale. And it's, there, there's friction in terms of the different cultures of the organizations. And it's just, it's, it's not going to happen. I mean, we've, there's a there, whole graveyard. There are too many examples, like 22 7 and what, price check. Yeah. What, what yeah, we're seeing yeah. that is working is invest a partner Correct. in a non exclusive way, drive that initial scale, kickstart it, throw some paraffin on that fire, get it going, um, and let this thing run wild globally. Yeah, raise some marshmallows. Yeah. Get Kick the marshmallows back. out. Now, now things are getting exciting. Yeah. Um, as opposed to you can only work with us or our clients, and that's it. The fishbowl of South Africa is your swimming pool. Uh-huh. Yeah, That's interesting, though. I would have thought that that would have been a kind of a mindset that would have been – in other words, the exclusivity would have been a kind of a mm. – The only exclusivity you should have is how fast you can move and whether you've got the speed to take advantage uh, to create the competitive advantage to the opportunity. Because remember, I mean, startups have limited bandwidth and the only way corporates should consume that, it, well, the only way corporates should have exclusivity is by consuming that bandwidth mm, because correct. they are allocating so much time and resources to this. Okay, cool. Let's do um, knockout punch. So guys, this is your top tip for entrepreneurs, startups. <laughs> top tip. I have the tiger stuff. Boom, boom. Um, As an entrepreneur, like I said earlier, think if you want to raise money from an investor, think like an investor. Wear wear an investor's hat. If you want to partner with a corporate, think about how they would benefit from using your technology or your product. Don't think like an entrepreneur. So try not to think the same mindset that you've been used to and step outside the box and do what others want you to do. Knockout punch from Stuart. Investors should come knocking on your door. Figure that out. Should we do the points? <laughs> cool. Thanks, Mav, for that. That was rad. Um, so I'm going to play a game with you guys. I've never done this on the show before. So bear with me while I set this shit up. But basically, it's a game of true and false. You're not allowed to look at the computer screen. That's okay. cheating, guys. You have to only look forward at the camera. So, um, <laughs> so I'm going to read a statement to you, and then I want your views about just simply true or false. I want you to lead with that. And then if you feel like explaining your answers, by all means, do Both that. of us together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Here we go. Number one, startups have a gender problem. True or false? 
True. True. Oh, yes. Correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> we need more female entrepreneurs and startup founders like Benji. True. True, and Benji's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Uh, eight out of ten startups fail within the first year. True. Is this in South Africa? Globally. Mm. False. <sighs> it's tough. Um, I'm going to say true, but, really? I don't know, but I don't know. Eight out of ten startups. Okay. Yeah, so if you give up your dream before 12 months has gone through, yeah. I'm not sure that's good for your track record. No, no, I'm, I just didn't know what the definition of failure is, but yes. Uh-huh. Well, that's a good point. What is failure? If only a stepping stone to success. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> so the actual answer is that 8 out of 10 companies not only survive the first year, but half of them are still in business by the end of year five. That's a US stat. I would say, though, locally, given what we have to deal with here in South Africa, God damn, uh, is that that number is actually, or that statement, 8 out of 10, is actually true. In, yeah. It depends where you're looking. If you're looking at tech startups, yeah. I, I don't think that I think that that's false. Really? And I think I think South African entrepreneurs have a lot of grit. Uh yeah. and I think our market's small and um people realize that there's credibility at stake. Um I'm not, I'm not going to say who it is. We've just engaged with with a team and everything was was hunky dory and then we got an email uh, we've gone out of business. Cheers. And that's exactly what they sent to all their staff. Uh, that's just a, not a scenario that I think we'd see here. Okay, cool. Next one. You don't need a great idea or plan. False. False. Why? How could you do anything in life without planning? Yeah, and I also think it's part of storytelling. You don't, you, yeah. Your story doesn't need to be right, but you have to have a story. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 like, it's human nature. Clients want a story. Investors want a story. Uh, if if you don't have a plan around what you're doing and there's no story, um, it, it's honestly it most likely looks hopeless. Yeah. So what about the instance? Because I'm I can attest to this. I mean, I've founded nine startups, right? Six of those bit the dust in a major way, um, and so I can tell you that the ones that succeeded, um, even like digital kung fu. Is a different business, same brand, but entirely different business because I had to solve a different problem in order for that business to survive. So in other words, when when you start out, you're looking to solve A. But A, in other words, I love the statement where it's like there might be a gap in the market, but is there a market in the gap? Yeah. So you go out there and you think that there's a gap in the market. You turn on and go, oh, shit, there isn't actually a gap for podcasts only. So now we have to do all sorts of media, right? Just because the market doesn't scale for that particular thing. But, so but you had a story. You had a change. story. Yeah, and, yeah, and you had story a plan. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. But, 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 but your question was startups fail without any idea or plan. That is false. If you literally, I mean, you're literally playing roulette, or you're having, you know, you're Zach, what did you roulette. do at Startup Bootcamp if it was uh, Fast Track Day and somebody came up and said, uh, we have no idea or plan, but you can back us? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, yeah, that's know, a winner, right? Yeah, of course. I do them all. <laughs> that one goes that hits up. We'll park out. my house for that. <laughs> okay, cool. Next one. You need an office to get started. False. False. God, that's an easy one. Uh, speed is fundamental. Maybe you don't want to be the dog that caught the bus, but yes. What True. the dog that caught the bus? Lost me there, Brad. If if you ever see a dog chasing a bus, 
and the bus finally stops, what has it been chasing it for? Because it doesn't go and bite it. It just stops with it. <laughs> yeah, <it's- laughs> I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Is that similar to like the kitten and the ball of wool thing? When you give it, when you like take it away, it gets interested. But when you give it to the kitten, it I've never heard that one. Have not really? Jeez, that goes back to our dating analogy. You know, Gosh. if you play hard to get, they stay interested. Never had that in your life. No. Well, I'm uh, happily married. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. You get to be your own boss. True or false? What, 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 what's the question again? If you, you get to be your own bo- boss. If you're a startup founder? Yes. Mm, fall, false. False. Okay, why? Because eventually you're at the mercy of your clients and your investors. And your clients should be your boss. Your clients should be your boss, exactly. Cool, love that. Spot that talks on. to mindset. Okay, grow your startup before you grow your brand. This is actually a contact, contentious one. I've got two views on this. Don't you have a stake in the fire? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is true. Um, the marshmallow's down, dude. I think you've got to very carefully balance this. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to build a brand with no credibility because you're just going to erode trust. Correct. Yeah. Uh, I think you want to have uh, demonstrated wins that you talk about. I think there are enough talkers in this space, not only in South Africa, but globally. Call them tech bros. Um, we need we need more <laughs> doers and leaders, and then we can talk around that. Okay, I agree. Yeah, yeah. You agree with that one? Mm-hmm. It's it's good because I I try and stay away from startups actually in the context of you know offering them branded content and helping them build their brand because they're so busy trying to build tech and just to solve the business uh, like business model stuff. Yeah, you know that they don't actually care about their brand. And so, in fact, well, it's not that. They do care, but they just don't care at that time. The only, the only exception to this rule that I can say, which is a little cheeky, but it happens all the time, is if you're a serial entrepreneur that's had several companies that have, that, that have done exceptionally well, you can get away with building a brand for your fifth or sixth or seventh startup without having a perfect product because mm-hmm. people just trust that you will make it happen. I'll second that, but you need to know where all the landmines are. Correct. Mm -hmm. And then you're putting a lot of pressure on. Okay, cool. Next one, focus on product market fit. Yes, yes, yes. True, true, true. True. Pause the lot there, hein? There there are a couple of other things that are very important to focus on as well. Okay, go. What are they? Well, I think first of all, uh, I honestly don't think enough teams uh, consider what clients actually need Mm. up front. And... um, I think that, that that psychology should be the center of everything that you're doing. In terms of product market fit, it sounds really quite generic. If we see like some of the best teams coming out, they focus on a niche and then grow out from there. They know one client and they know that client unbelievably well. Um, and so I would argue that that's more important than product market fit. Mm. Yeah. Okay, last one. Don't wait for the right moment. True or false? I'm assuming this is before when the context of starting. <laughs> yeah, I'd say true because there are two sides to the story. You can either build a perfect product, and which is what Google did. You know, I mean, how many of you have heard of Ask Jeeves and Lycos and these ooh, old ooh. search engines? <laughs> and Google waited until they had the perfect <laughs> search algorithm, right? And they won. Uh-huh. So Google waited. 
they had the best algorithm and then they won. Mm. But there are, you know, for every Google, there are hundreds of people that just went to market first, hit the road running, and then iterated after that. So it's a tricky one. It's, I mean, to me, it's not a straight true or false question. It, it depends on the market. Um, timing is one of the most important things in the startup success story. Let's talk about timing. Blockchain. <laughs> did you just use that word? Oh, uh, no. I'm dude. surprised you should didn't we, say AI. Should we talk about AI learning. instead? It's more hot right now. <laughs> just, just, just one thing to the timing piece. Uh-huh. I think often... Um, well, this is why I'm talking about timing because there's no steam in that market anymore. I haven't no. heard of a single use case, really. That scales. Lots of people say they have one. I think I think like the psychology of people is often to approach where there's a lot of activity or hype, um, and you know, it's it's actually quite baffling because I mean if you if you go try to talk to a famous person in the street, they're going to be like, oh, leave me alone. But that same famous person wasn't famous just before, and you weren't trying to talk to them. So try to find value where other people aren't looking. Yeah, I think I think that that is. Um, pretty much a life lesson that everybody needs to learn mm-hmm. as it goes. Now, the, the issue of blockchain, right? So if you break it down into its core elements, cryptographically protected, programmable, and automatable money. Now, why on earth you need to buy a Coca-Cola with cryptographically protected, programmable, and automatable money? I will never know. But what I can say is once we have these data layers fixed and we have uh, machines talking to machines and transacting with machines, you are going to need programmable and automatable money. And that's where I'm excited for this specific layer and these elements. For me, that's where I see the opportunity. I may be wrong, but uh, in terms of practical use cases with commercialization opportunity and value, that's where I see it. And now a word from the Daily Hustle. So the other day, an entrepreneur phones me up and he says, listen, Matt, I've been listening to your show, but I want to get your opinion on something. My business is not where it should be and i want to know from you whether or not i should quit now this is a very difficult question to answer but i think it's a question that at some point if you've started a business at any given point in time in your life that you probably have asked yourself so how do you answer the question well there's a framework that i work with that i find incredibly valuable and it's basically comprised of two things the first thing is vision and the second thing is growth so you have to ask yourself From a vision perspective, are you still in love with the vision? And from a growth perspective, is the business making money? From a personal perspective, are you potentially growing? Now, if your business is not making money, but you're still in love with the vision, then carry on and fix the business problem. If your business is not making money, but you're not in love with the vision, then that is a red flag. Obviously, if your business is not making money and you're not in love with the vision, then you need to pull a plug on that shit immediately. So I hope that framework's been helpful for you guys who are struggling to answer that question. This is Matt signing off, and I'll see you again soon. Ciao. I'd, I'd agree. It's, it's, if the moment you, I mean, it boils down to, you know, blockchain as a store of value versus an actual tradable currency. Mm-hmm. The moment you look at Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these, um, cryptocurrencies as tradable entities without an actual store of value, you, you, you you're bound to lose. Um, if I hear the word ICO again, I actually might just vomit. But <laughs> Zach, isn't Startup Bootcamp doing an ICO? <laughs> After rounds and rounds and rounds of diligence, yes, we find yeah. companies that are ICOable. So, so Startup Bootcamp, just one of our portfolio companies in Melbourne is a renewable energy. So okay, let's talk technical here. <laughs> ICOs that involve a utility token where tokens value is attributable to a certain utility. 
in this particular case, the amount of energy saved by using this piece of technology adds value to that digital wallet. That's a utility token. An ICO for a utility token makes perfect sense. The majority of ICOs are service-based, which is dependent on some future value of an asset that gets traded. So when someone says, I'm raising $100 million in an ICO on something whose value will get to X based on investor supply and demand, that's bullshit. That's why the majority of ICOs have failed majestically. Mm -hmm. But a utility token... You can understand what value I'm, I'm, I'm saving money. I'm saving time. I'm saving energy. It's, it's, it's an efficiency question. Two different questions. Most ICOs are not utility token based ICOs. And that's a problem that I have. But I, th I think the other issue there is early adopters are, you know, it's, they're the tails. They're the best and the worst. And there are a lot of scammers in this space. And I think a lot of people have been taken for a ride and it's eroded credibility. I think if you look at the underlying technologies, a lot of the technologies aren't new. They're just put together in a different way. Correct. This is the convergence. And there are definitely valuable use cases in that. But it's going to take us a decade to find these. Mm. And let's do them systematically and let's build value inside of uh, with, through the application of this, through experimentation, um, building credibility and trust and actually delivering uh, value. I love it. Guys, we're going to move on to our favorite segment of the show, which is the Injustice League. Okay, cool. So, um, Kumo, if you can grab this laptop and if you can remove this glass. Um, and so, it's basically, guys, this is where you're going to end this class here because you guys are going to start swinging baseball bats. We've got you a stunning uh, prop from our sponsor, which is My Little Pony. Hi, guys. Um, and so, um, this what's, what's this one's name again? Rainbow Dash. Rainbow Dash is in the house. Shout today. out to my five-year-old she turns five in two weeks and if she sees this she will be so upset <laughs> because right? rainbow dash daddy Death why did you hit dash. rainbow dash daddy so, yeah, so. <laughs> cool so um i'm gonna ask you guys just to get off your chairs and stand up for me as well for a second and then uh, can map you grab these chairs from us and i'm gonna get out the way here but um so the injustice league is very much about expressing the injustices that you see uh in business in the world of startups um, and so I'm going to start with Stuart's and because I'm standing closer to you. <laughs> uh, what is the one injustice that you see in the world of startups right now? Proof of concepts that have no tangible outcome with defined success metrics that will lead to something greater and just consume the time and resources of startups in an unfair way that literally costs them their business. Jeez, hmm. this is synced. Zach? Um, I think it's access to information. Uh, a lot of startups have no idea what their competitors are doing, what the industry trends are, what market research is. Market research and competitor analysis is something that most startups have to do, but they have no access to it. Often VCs and angel investors know more about an industry and competitors than they do. So when a startup walks in and say, who are your competitors? Um, I've got one, yeah, I've got two competitors, but in reality, there are 20. And because the VCs see so many deals, they know the landscape better than an actual founder. So a startup is actually inherently on day one off on the wrong foot because they don't have access to the same information that investors have. Cool. So that's... Love it. Mav, let's roll that uh, My Little Pony audio track there, guys. You can put your mics down for me. And I want you guys to think about this injustice. Let's move this chair out the way here. Thanks very much. 
I'm going to get out the way completely. This is a pinata and not a real pony. This is not a real pony. We, we're very much animal uh, rights activists here. Um, but nonetheless, this is not a safe zone for me to be in at this point in the show. <laughs> so here's your bat, Stuart. Um, and as I want you guys just to think about this injustice. The poor little startup. Shame, man. You know, and these guys that just can't make it rain out there. And I want you to take, like, on behalf of them and these startups around the world right now, I want you to take your frustration out on this Rainbow Dash My Little Pony. <laughs> Go for it, dude. Smash that shit. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You got to use your mic. Use your mic. Sorry, to all the children watching the show, we actually love ponies. That is, <laughs> that is a, a pony. That is a pinata. <laughs> cool. Um, and then uh, I'm just going to get you guys to sign these bats, please. <laughs> Uh, there's a permanent market there, um, Mav, if you can grab it for the guys. But I just want to end off the show here with, um, there you go, with um, just a few more questions, if you don't mind. Um, and Zach, as soon as you finish signing the bats, I'd love to start with you. By the way, these bats are going to be mounted on the walls from season one, season two, once they get fully signed. Um, but um, well, fuck it, let's just start with you, Stuart, because you're more interesting right now. <laughs> But um, like, why do you do what you do? Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, so I think one of the reasons uh, that I accepted the role with NetBank CIB was specifically to really kickstart this engine uh, and to do at, le at least make a dent in the universe. And I think that we've been able to do that uh, in 18 months. There's still a lot of work to do, but it, I, and it's not attributable to us, but we definitely are role players in this in terms of the various stakeholders in the ecosystem. How do we create, how do we create endpoints or opportunity to get uh, angel investors on board, to get them firing? How do we create exits at the end? How do we actually support the venture capital needs uh, of the ecosystem? And how do we create that entire ecosystem so there's an endpoint? I think a lot of investors in South Africa have been running with no endpoint in sight. And it's good to see the, that finish line coming, uh, starting to form. Uh, and to have played a, a role and a part in that, that gets me going, that gets me excited. Sweet, dude. Love it. Zach, what gets you out of bed in the morning, bud? Yeah, I think uh, the, the fact that there is a, an alternative way to approach having a positive impact on the economy and not just through debt, government funding, foundation funding, and, and pity and charity money. Um, sadly, a lot of the world is split into two camps. There's the, the uber capitalistic world that believes that money and commercialization capitalism controls everything. And then you've got the nonprofit world, which is run by the foundations, the big charities, et cetera, and, and philanthropy. And one of the reasons why I still live in South Africa, I've been here for the last eight years, is because there is a way through entrepreneurship, through venture capital, through accelerators, through corporate innovation, open innovation ecosystems where governments, corporate startups, incubators, accelerators all work together to foster digital talent as a means to create massive impact. And the work that Stuart does, that I do, that we all do as a community helps create jobs, improve living conditions, and have an indirect effect on the economy in a positive way, arguably a lot more than government grants, nonprofit donations, because when you use technology to scale businesses, the impact is so massive. And technology is the one level playing field that everyone can use. 
it gets it, it it cuts across race culture nation gender stereotypes because technology is is available and usable by everyone cool. so guys just some questions from the audience and all um if you can give us one or two and then we'll wrap up Mike, Mike. So we've got a question from Keegan. He's asking, what advice would you give someone who wants to create a startup business? Gosh, that's such an open-ended question. Mm. Um, think about your customers first and whether you're solving an actual problem that the market needs before starting anything. I would say, do you really give a shit about that problem? You know what I mean? Pick something that you really can see yourself doing for five years, otherwise don't do it for five minutes. And something that you understand that's in your everyday life. Start there. Um, and uh, you know where the friction points are in your life. Document it, write it down, uh, and then build it out from there. I mean, it's a touche thing, but you say, what? Think, think global, act local. So start from home and then build out. Grow where you planted. Yeah. Local is lacquer. <laughs> uh, we've got one more question from Bangani. Hi guys, I created a startup business, but it didn't really take off. Do you guys have any advice? Should I give up or should I rethink it? Well, Bengani, why did it fail? Why, why, why did your business fail? Was it because there weren't enough customers for it? Did you run out of funding? Did you not make something that someone needed? So, I mean, th there's this common thing that people talk about. Okay, so if my if my y-axis, um, y-axis from a math perspective is value valuation of my company. And my x-axis is usually time or money. The reality is your x-axis is really validation. If I can find customers that are willing to pay for my product or service, that is a, that is the biggest barometer for what you, for the valuation of your company, not just time or money. You can create a lot of value in two weeks, or you could create no value in nine years. The same thing with money. So it's about validation, validation, validation. Yeah, I mean, there's su su such limited information there, but just one thing that I always remind people is it takes 10 years to build a business. This is not something you do overnight. Yeah, cool. Guys, thank you so much for uh, your time today. It's been really rad chatting to you guys again. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> and, thank uh, you for having yeah, us. Good luck with Startup Bootcamp, dude, and whatever you guys are doing, I'm sure it'll be amazing to watch in the future. Thanks. Awesome. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for checking out the Map Round Show, guys. And if you'd like to get the Kung Fu put in your ninja, check out digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.